1: Join us on a journey from Genesis to Revelation, all 66 books, the big
0: book, cover to cover. This is Michael Easley in Context. Well, it's a delight to have Dr. Eugene Merrill on the broadcast today. I first met Dr. Merrill during my time at Dallas Seminary, where he has been a professor from 1975 until he achieved the rank of Distinguished Professor of Old Testament in 2006. And after some transitions from the seminary in 2013, he is now the scholar in residence at the Criswell College. He continues in his 80s to be a prolific writer, a contributor to the Evangelical Theological Society, and is a go-to individual when it comes to Old Testament, to Hebrew, to chronologies, and on and on. So it's a delight to have Dr. Merrill on the program today. Let's start, first of all, Dr. Merrill, give us a timeline to fit Ezra and Nehemiah together a little bit, because these books overlap and there's some gaps in them that are a bit hard for the average reader to, to see.
1: Sure. Well, I think there is a very little question about the dating of the book, at least the era, the period in which uh, the book was composed. Uh, right at the very beginning of the book, we read that uh, in the first year of Cyrus, the king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be accomplished. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus. Well, the first year of Cyrus is 50, actually, but this is uh, some years later, than around 538, he made a decree that all captive peoples in Babylon were free to go back to their homeland. Of course, that included Jews, so that's 538. So we date Ezra's return to Jerusalem around 480 or so.
0: Now we've got this uh, famous Cyrus Cylinder that was discovered, and uh, it. If, am I correct in saying this is essentially a repatriating program that's inscribed on this?
1: Yes, it is. It's a. Uh, it's an amazing inscription. It's a kind of a, a barrel shape, is the way it's often described. A round, elongated inscription, but it it essentially uh, confirms exactly what the Bible says in regard to the issues that were involved and the reasons that uh, Cyrus determined to let the uh, the people go, although, of course, he was not a worshiper of the true God, but it says that the Lord stirred his heart to do this.
0: You know, we have a couple of characters like this in the Old Testament who uh, were, let's just say, favorable in certain times and ways, and so it is interesting, I often tell people, archaeology does not prove the Bible. Bible proves archaeology. But it's fascinating that this um, Cyrus Cylinder tells this story with, with such great accuracy. Help out the, the modern-day listener to you and me. They're in captivity. They're there because of their sin. They're coming back to a city that's been destroyed, essentially. The walls are torn down. The temple complex is in disrepair. Fill us in a little bit on what that would have been like.
1: It's hard to imagine the feelings of the folks who first went back. I think uh, it's helpful to read the book of Lamentations, which was written by Jeremiah, an eyewitness to the destruction and to the aftermath of the destruction. And uh, the book of Lamentations uh, is filled with lament, as the title would suggest. And the whole book is a cry out to God, why, how did this happen? And even the great prophet, you know, raised questions about these things. And he says, uh, the city sits desolate, like a like a bride without her husband and so forth. It, the whole thing was leveled. It was like a Hiroshima or something like that, like the A-bomb did. The, the Romans didn't spare anything. And especially that that great temple that Solomon had built was smashed down and uh, robbed of all of of its uh, furnishings, the gold and the silver and all that uh, went with it. And so when these folks came back, the temple had remained unbuilt. You remember the plea of Haggai in 520, which is 18 years after the decree of Cyrus in 520. Haggai laments that the temple has not been rebuilt yet. And he says, how is it that you have rebuilt your fine homes uh, with panels of uh, walls and the temple lies in ruins? Uh, how is it that you take care of yourselves, you people, and uh, rather than taking care of the things of God? You know, Michael, that'll resonate, won't it? Uh, it does to me. Why? Why am I more interested mm-hmm. in what I'm doing and what I need than I am in asking the question, Lord, what would you have of me? What shall I do for you? And uh, so it, it it was a tragic thing to see.
0: When you think of the time spans when they're displaced, they come back to a ruined city, which we've both been to Israel many times. I I continue to lead groups there, and what you're seeing is just hard to envision of what it was like at the time when the temple complex was built. But these people forget, and their children don't know. They don't know yes. what it was like. And so, uh, right. you know, how does a parent, uh, in keeping of Deuteronomy's admonition, the great Shema, teach your children these things so that they remember Yahweh Elohim, they yeah. remember the deeds yeah. he's done, and now they come back to a ruin. So yes, it's very complicated. Well,
1: they may not, the children cannot remember, of course, what happened. You remember, uh, before I forget it, uh, the old men, <laughs> the old men referred to also there in Haggai and Ezra, when they saw they cried. Meager, the meager second temple that was being built, the yeah. foundations that were laid, they said, oh, this is nothing compared to the great temple right. that was here before. And so they remembered, they, they certainly remembered the glory of that temple those many years back. But the young people, you're right. The old people had to instruct them and teach them, it seems to me, as you say in Deuteronomy, where we have uh, the instruction to uh, teach our children lest they should forget what God has done. And so it seems to me that uh, a lot of education had to go on pretty quickly and a lot of pre-information ahead of time before they ever left Babylon. Here's what you can expect. You know, They certainly were not ready for what they saw. And when they saw the second temple being built, which seemed at the beginning unworthy, <laughs> as it were, compared to what had existed before. But nonetheless, uh, the prophet stirred them up to do the work. And uh, and you remember that uh, it says in Haggai that uh, the day would come when the glory of this temple, the splendor of this temple would outshine, mm. you know, everything that had preceded. Well, that I think it's an eschatological passage suggesting that someday, someday when the true temple of the Lord exists, whatever form it may take, there'll be nothing in the past that is comparable to it whatsoever. So just wait. God has still got things in the future that are better than anything in the past.
0: I love the uh, section in Ezra 3 where the priest stood in their apparel with the trumpets and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, the cymbals, to praise the Lord according to the direction of King David of Israel. So they <laughs> they go back to that. And That's then it right. says they sang, praising, and giving thanks to the Lord, saying, yes. for he is good and his loving kindness. Chesed is upon Israel forever. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. Yet many of the yes. priests and Levites and heads of the fathers, old men, who had seen, wept with a loud voice. And many shouted loud for joy. Yeah. The people could not discern the noise of the shout of joy,
1: from the noise of the weeping of the people.
0: That had to be something.
1: You've got a mixed crowd out yeah. there. you get got the, the younger ones, it seems to me, are just shouting with joy, and the old guys, the old men and women are just saying, oh, this is nothing compared to what yeah. we had." But you know, Mike, it's true, I think, in human nature. The things that we recollect from our childhood were always uh, massive and wonderful (laughs) and beautiful, and what we see in the present uh,
0: cannot... can be disheartening, right. In the good old days. Exactly. You know, in the good old
1: (laughs) days. I'm saying that more and more lately, (laughs) but uh, I've got to restrain myself from it because those days also had their problems. Oh, did they? There's so much in the Bible about remembering I did a paper one time for a topic of uh, remembrance, uh, and I had to give up after a while because I had to narrow the scope considerably because the Bible is full of admonition to remember. But it makes a wonderful study.
0: It's a great study along with don't forget, which is the parallel, remember and don't forget. So, hey, let's talk a little bit about Ezra 9, because when Ezra sees the sin of the people, he does immense words. And uh, he he comes out pretty hard against them uh, for their sin. Talk a little bit about Ezra 9.
1: The people of Israel and the priests, Levites, have not separated themselves from the people of the lands, first of all. These are clergy, you see. The people of Israel and the priests and the Levites didn't separate themselves from the people of the land they did precisely what Deuteronomy says again in regard, I think, chapter 7, the regard to intermarriage and uh, what that will bring about. And uh, and mentioned some of the other peoples with whom they in, uh, engaged in marriage. Canaanites, Hittites, Perizzites, Jebusites, Samanites, sounds like, it sounds like Deuteronomy 7 all over again. Sounds like Exodus 34, where we have the instruction not to intermarry with the heathen, because inevitably, to intermarry is to water down whatever conviction one might have to accommodate himself or herself to the to the mate to the partner, and uh, there's bound to be there's bound to be difficulty. They have taken of their daughters for themselves for their sons so that the holy seed have mingled themselves with the people of the land. This holy seed takes us back, doesn't it, to Abraham. All the way to Abraham, there was a seed that was transmitted down through Isaac and Jacob and Judah and onward through David and through the Old Testament period down into the time of the Lord Jesus Christ. That seed... Uh, the, the woman back in Genesis three uh, will crush the head of the serpent. well, here they are they are conveyors of that precious seed it's been entrusted to them now, and what do they do? They mingle that seed with the seed of the unholy that's that's why this is such a serious matter, just not a matter of marrying the unbeliever I mean that is. That is, Paul is very sharp on that one, but uh, the theological depth of what is said here is uh, is just amazing. It's the, the holy seed, think of it in those terms. Will that seed remain intact? If not, what will happen to messianic hope? Since Jesus is the promised seed in the final analysis, what would have happened? I wonder if Ezra and others of that generation probably understood that in the Abrahamic sense, that there's a transmission of the seed, and it will ultimately result in the Messiah, the offspring of David. Hundreds of times we find it in the Psalms and other places where this line is uh, clearly drawn and magnified as a very important part of of their Jewish faith. This is a great passage. It's one we have to face in everyday ministry, don't we? We're not suggesting, I wouldn't suggest, that we we are bearers of some holy seed or anything of the kind. But the, the injunction is nonetheless the same. Be not unequally yoked together. And boy, that's hard
0: these days. And it seems, you know, the tension of we need to hate our sin and see it as God sees it. But also, you know, we have the appeal to what Christ has done, first John one nine, if we confess our sins, He's faithful and righteous to forgive yes. us our sins and cleanse us yes. from all righteousness. So it's this ongoing tension, but it's so unpopular to to call something sin today. Yes. And yes. Uh, and we're we're gonna be in trouble if we say yes. that's sin.
1: <laughs> well and, and and Mike, you know the other side of that Yes, he called it sin, but look at verse 5. At the evening oblations, I rose up from my humiliation with my garment and robe torn. I fell on my knees. I spread out my hands unto Yahweh my God. And I said, Oh, my God, I'm ashamed. And I blush to lift up my face to you because our, mm-hmm. not there, Our iniquities are increased over our head. Our guiltiness is grown up to the heavens. So when Ezra is condemning rightly, rightly as you say, the sins of the people, he's honest enough to say, look, I'm part of the problem and I need to be part of the solution. He loves his people to the extent that he's willing to identify with them, even in their guilt and sees himself as one of those who needs to be delivered from his sin also.
0: Amen. I always appreciate that about the psalmist too, when uh, or Nehemiah, the, their ownership of, hey, I'm one of these people. Give us two or three applicational takeaways when you think of the story of Ezra.
1: I think in terms of persistence to the accomplishment of a mission, it was not an easy thing. You say you've led trips to Israel, so have I. It's been some years now. I've generally gone pretty much on my own in recent years, but uh, it's like herding cats, isn't it, to get people together? (laughs) Yes, it is. (laughs) uh, So here we are with all our modern conveyances and ways of travel. Imagine in those days, those thousands of people trying to organize them, trying to, (laughs) to, to instruct them, to send messages to them. How did they do it? How did he accomplish it? Only to have them Dig in their heels and refuse to go, or want to go a different way. You know, somebody always has instructions about a way that's better than the way you want to go, and that must have been an overwhelming experience for Ezra to have to to, to do this. And as we read the book carefully, we know it didn't happen all at once. Uh, he had a stop along the way where uh, it was necessary to recruit more priests; the numbers were not sufficient. And so many things had to be done before they ever got there. And uh, complaining and griping reminds me really in a sense of uh, the experience of the the Exodus. And moving through the the wilderness on the way to the land of promise, they were going, uh, in that case, to the east, and Ezra now is going to the west. It's the same kind of experience. But he finally got them there, and then he he finds out that uh, those that are already there have been engaged in intermarriage, and I think I would want to quit, but I I see persistence (laughs) in this man. He's not going to stop until God has said, you have finished your work, you finished the job. I admire Ezra for that.
0: Okay, so persistence. What's another one? Well,
1: patience. He seems to be extremely patient with the people. He's a man of prayer, too, he knows that when things get to a certain point, he no longer has the resources that are required to carry on. And so we have several instances of uh, Ezra lifting up his heart to God in, uh, in, in prayer. Uh, his relationship with Nehemiah is very interesting, too. Nehemiah uh, clearly was a younger man, and uh, and they seemed to, seem to work so well together, the priest and the governor. As far as we can tell, I wish there were more in the scriptures to tell us about that connection. But what we do read seems to be a nature of teamwork, of working together for the kingdom of
0: God. Okay, so we have persistence, we have prayer. What else?
1: You're looking for a third P, I bet, aren't you?
0: <laughs> well, <laughs> <laughs> I never did very well with those, but... <laughs>
1: <laughs> There's a plethora of... Um, of um, <laughs> A purity here too, I think, the insistence on purity, the purity of the people. Well, just the intermarriages is an aspect of the seed, the messianic seed being polluted. And, and so the emphasis in Ezra, not surprisingly, since he was a priest, was on purity, not just in terms of the liturgy and that sort of thing, but purity of life and motive and and so forth.
0: All right, final comment. If you were talking to uh, someone at your church or someone like me says, okay, Dr. Merrill, in, in a few sentences, tell me what the story of Ezra is about.
1: Well, Ezra was among the captives, first of all. We have no idea whether he had been taken captive himself or whether it had been his father, grandfather, or somebody, but we know he was one of the captives in in the city of Babylon. And this uh, captivity, there were three of them actually, but the final one of 586 B.C., I think it's unlikely that Ezra was part of that because uh, he would not have been that old to have been taken at that time. But anyway, Ezra, his heart was in Jerusalem, whether his body was there or not. Mm. And God had called him. God had called him to be a leader, to bring reformation, to bring restoration, to bring repentance of the people in their preparation to go back. If they're going to be the people of God, they don't become the people of God just by being in Jerusalem. They must be the people of God en route to Jerusalem, and they must be uh, a pure people and obedient to Torah. They must follow the plan and the will of God for the nation, for the people. And so uh, Ezra then leads this movement around 458 B.C. They arrive in Jerusalem. Ezra sees the condition of things, uh, and his heart is stirred and moved to start the rebuilding process right off. So he constructs a wall of some sort. It's found out later that that wall was breached and broken down, and and Nehemiah was aware of that, and uh, came when he came in the 440s B.C., he noted that. But Ezra did the best he could with the people that he had with him. The foremost in his mind was not the building of walls or houses or even the temple. The foremost thing was to build a people back into being the people of God, a people that have a church, but they don't have any character, they don't have any testimony, don't have any real grounding in the faith. It uh, doesn't matter. The church does not make the people. The people make the church. And uh, nothing could happen. Nothing good was going to happen in uh, the promised land, in Jerusalem, in Yehud, as they called it in those days. Nothing was going to happen until the people were made right with God. And that was the burden of both Ezra and Nehemiah. So different they were. The priest and the governor. The uh, the clergy and the the politician linking arms together in the cause of, of Yahweh, which is the cause of Christ also. So that to me is the summation of the book in very brief form. There are many, many names mentioned here. By the way, I've done a commentary of Chronicles. When you do the first nine chapters, First Chronicles, I've never heard a sermon on any part of First Chronicles one through nine, but uh, it's just endless genealogies, it seems, as we're told in the, the New Testament. But look, those names were the names of people, and God knew those names and he knew those mm-hmm. people. Mm-hmm. And when I look at Ezra, I see these names. These were names of real people. And I believe we shall see those people someday in glory. They preceded us. We shall join them someday. I want to talk more at that time about the meaning of the book of Ezra than I know now. But uh, uh, one thing I do know is that uh, uh, that uh, God used this man in a marvelous manner because he was a man fully entrusted and committed to the will of God and this I think is something that we need to recollect and we need to make part of our own lives.
0: Well Dr. Merrill we thank you for your time and for your diligence in the word and I pray that you're encouraged and blessed in your research and enjoy the ministry that God has given you and continues to provide for you. Michael Easley in Context is fully
1: funded from donations by our listeners. If you're a regular listener, would you consider giving a one-time or perhaps monthly donation on our website? You can find us on michaelincontext.com. In Context is engineered by Chad Cates, produced by Hannah Seymour, and music composed by Tycho, Chad Cates, and Blair Masters.